from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. This is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. One hour a week isn't nearly enough time to talk about all the music we want to cover. So we've got some leftover music to go with our Thanksgiving leftovers. This week we're clearing out the fridge and making time for music we missed earlier this year. Yeah, I'm gonna take my horse to the old town road. I'm gonna ride till I can't Plus, DJ Shadow explains how he found the sample that built his latest single. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're going to hear from DJ Shadow and learn how he built his latest single. But first, we've got some leftovers to finish up. Yeah, Greg. You know, in years past, around Thanksgiving, we have done the Turkey Shoot, a record we had high expectations for, but that turned out to stink, according to our opinion. Um, And, and, you know, that's a, a little like shooting fish in a barrel. So we're going to do some of that as Thanksgiving leftovers, but also stuff that we were intrigued about, but just never got to talk about on Sound Opinions. So you're going to lead us off. I am, Jim. Uh, I want to talk about Billie Eilish. I think uh, Billie Eilish, a uh, a 17-year-old singer, she's going to turn 18 in December, uh, has been one of the two artists of the year, the other being Lizzo. I think Mm. if uh, these artists aren't in many, many top 10 lists at the end of the year and aren't being, you know, fatted at all these awards ceremonies that we like to watch on television, uh, somebody will have missed two major pop phenoms this year. Uh, Billie Eilish, uh, you know, has has really kind of come from a bedroom artist uh, two years ago to a an arena uh, a seller right mm-hmm. now. She's selling out arenas around the country. Uh, she's got another tour coming up in early 2020. Uh, her record that came out earlier this year, When We All Fall Asleep, Where Do We Go, uh, debuted atop the Billboard 200. It uh, had four top 40 hits. It sold millions of copies. She's the first artist born in the 2000s to have a number one single in the mm-hmm. U.S. So she's representing, what is that, Generation Z, I believe they refer to themselves as? Uh, that's the part of the population that's born somewhere between the mid-90s and the mid, mid-2000s, mid right? Yeah. Um, she was Not born, to typecast yes, anyone. Yes. No, but she was born in 2001. What I loved about seeing her at the United Center here as part of that uh, arena tour earlier this year, uh, that was easily the loudest audience response of any a concert I've attended in years. And she's up there on stage in this floppy T-shirt and with this awkward but very enthusiastic dancing. And I'm thinking, she could be one of them. And they identify with that. She, has a, she comes across as a very down-to-earth, hey, I'm, I'm the girl next door. I just happen to make music, but I'm relating to what you're going through. And this whole awkwardness of adolescence, of, of that transition from being a young girl to being an adult, um, is is really the 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 fulcrum uh, on which her her music turns? Well, you're 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 doing a good job on the backstory, which I was intrigued by. But I've listened to this album a good dozen times at different occasions, and and I'm not figuring out what the appeal is musically. I think what the appeal for me musically was that first of all, here's a a, a, a young woman who is you know cranking out hit after hit, uh, you know, against more mainstream uh, sounding recordings by artists like Ariana Grande. Um, but her recordings don't sound at all like they're being tailored for that glossy radio airplay hit. They're they're very um, uh, stripped down. They got a dirty sound to them. It reminds me of early Grimes recordings, actually, mm. more so than it does mainstream pop. So I love the production sound. Uh, she works uh, in tandem with her brother, Phineas. Um, he's 
He's kind of a collaborator with her on many of the recordings that she has done. And then she's singing about very real uh, concerns, as I said, that her audience has, this obsession with with monsters and, you know, the, the, the monsters under my bed and in my head. She reminds me of sort of a, a, an audio companion to that TV series, Stranger Things, hmm. you know, where she's visiting the upside down world you know? <laughs> and there's monsters under the bed and, you know, yeah. in her head and et cetera. And, and, and I think those, those concerns are real. If you're a young person, the monsters don't necessarily have to take physical shape, but it's more about anxiety about, you know, what your life is and what it's going to become. And when I think of a song like Bury a Friend, uh, she's really singing about an alter ego who lives with her, is, is her, and is part of this nightmare, a recurring nightmare that she has. You know, everyone has a recurring nightmare. This is her recurring nightmare. And I think a lot of kids can, re- you know, I can relate to it. I know what she's talking right. about because I lived through it. I, it's and a I little, saw my kids living through it's it. It's a little torch songy for me, the whole record. It just doesn't grab me. Yeah, but I, you're, I, you're selling it. She's connecting with, with, with that audience for a reason. And I think she's very real. Uh, here's a little bit of Bury a Friend from Billie Eilish on Sound Opinions. What do you want from me? Why don't you run from me? What are you wondering? What do you know? Why aren't you scared of me? Why do you care for me? When we all fall asleep, where do we go? Come here. Say it, spit it out. What is it exactly? Your pain is the amount cleaning you out. Am I satisfactory? Today I'm thinking about things that are deadly the way i'm drinking you down like i wanna drown like i wanna end me step on the glass staple your tongue uh, bury a friend try to wake up uh, cannibal class killing the sun uh, bury a friend that is billy eilish bury a friend uh, an artist that i think uh, has had a huge impact on 2019 Greg, you're talking about artists born born in the new millennium. Uh, Montero Lamar Hill uh, just missed it. Uh, born in 1999, outside Atlanta. I bet nobody even recognizes that name, but they will recognize this one. Yeah. Little Nas X. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, he's a 19-year-old college dropout. Uh, when he uh, buys for $30 on the internet a Dutch producer's uh, twangy rap beat it, there's a little bit of a Nine Inch Nails sample mm-hmm. on there, and he crafts this song, Old Town Road. And I don't think anyone was more surprised than he was when it went on, this 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 mix he called Country Trap, to become, uh, in July, the longest-running number one single in the 61-year mm-hmm. history of Billboard's Hot 100 chart. I am not going to say that uh, the minute and 53 seconds of Old Town Road is brilliant, I am going to say it is an inescapable, irresistible earworm. You know, the history of pop music, Greg, is rife with these. Whether we're going back, you know, uh, the Halloween classic, The Monster Mash, mm-hmm. or, or a <laughs> more recent favorite of mine, All About That Bass by Megan Trainer. I don't know if these can be objectively defended as mm. good, mm. Uh, but they are certainly fun. And Old Town Road has that added political element of this African-American gay man infiltrating 
the country playlists, much to the mm. horror of traditional Nashville. You know, this is there's been a lot of records this year uh, that have broken down traditional Nashville and infiltrated like like gorillas under the barbed wire, which is all very good. But none of them has had a line like "Riding on your horse, ha! You can whip your Porsche, right?" Mm. I mean, this this is essentially blazing saddles in it less than two minute country pop song you know (laughs) it is not meant to be taken super seriously but to do my job here you know to try to capitalize on the success the unprecedented success of this single there is in fact a little nas x ep uh called seven although it has eight tracks on it (laughs) two of them are different versions of of old town road um he doesn't have another one in him, Greg. Mm. Not in this persona. Mm. He may be able to reinvent himself, you know, like Chip Davis, Mannheim Steamroller, or the CB <laughs> radio song. You know, he may be able to come up with other internet memes that, that explode. But uh, every other song on that EP is an inferior version of Old Town Road. Mm-hmm. You know, lightning struck once. I mean, how, and we have not talked about it at all. So here it is. Little Nas X with the original. Not the uh, Billy Ray Cyrus remix, uh, Old Town Road. I got the horses in the back, horse stock is attached. Head is mad at black, got the bushes black to match. Riding on a horse, ha, you can whip your Porsche. I've been in the valley, you ain't been up off that porch now. Can't nobody tell me nothing. Old Town Road, uh, Jim's pick for one of the uh, undeniable moments of 2019. I agree wholeheartedly, not only for Lil Nas X, but uh, bringing back Miley Cyrus's dad into the, into the country mainstream. I don't know if the, the auteur behind Achy Breaky Heart needed a revival. Oh my goodness, you know, um, but there, there's multiple levels to that song and, and its impact on the culture. There was a huge argument in country music circles yeah. about whether it was even could even be played on country radio or nominated it, for the country music awards yeah. yeah so it was it was wonderful that Billy Ray Cyrus stuck his foot in there and said wait a minute you know this is as country as any song it should be on country radio so i i love the whole you know blow up that that caused um, speaking of country music of a different uh, ilk Roseanne Cash uh, happened to be the daughter of one of the greatest country singers of all time Roseanne Cash herself is one of the great singers mm-hmm. of all time as far as i'm concerned she went on a tour, uh, a very small tour with Ry Cooter, performing the songs of her father, which is a pretty frickin' big deal because Roseanne avoided her father's yeah. songs for many, many years. She didn't want to be seen as riding her father's coattails, a perfectly justifiable reason not to be doing it. She certainly built her own career with its own credibility, uh, with her own brilliance as a songwriter and a singer. Cooter was the one that said, hey, you should do your dad's songs at some point. I think it's, I think it's worth a shot because Cooter comes at, at it from a standpoint of a fan of both artists, Roseanne and Johnny. Johnny being a huge influence on him as a young man growing up in California, hearing that voice on the radio made him want to become a musician, pick up that guitar and start playing like Luther Perkins, mm. uh, Johnny Cash's original guitar player. So to see 
this show was just a, a true moment of uh, greatness that perhaps will not be repeated. I hope they make a record at some point of those performances mm. and put it out. But meanwhile, we have the performances. Uh, some are caught on bad YouTube videos. But what I loved is what they did to the catalog. They did not treat it as a something to be revered, like a monument we can't mess with. They were going in there with the idea that, hey, we're going we're gonna to interpret these songs. We're not going to copy them. Particularly great was Cooter playing the original Luther Perkins guitar, a 55 Fender Esquire, for you uh, listeners out there who ever care about those sort of things. And the way he sliced and diced the rhythm on Hey Porter was a thing to see. And then, even better, was Roseanne tackling I Walk the Line. I talked to her before the show, and she said, there is no way I could have performed that song. I I just Mm. was not going to touch it. I didn't want to be the cutesy daughter performing her father's best-known song. Never, no way, no how. And her husband, John Leventhal, who was part of this tour, also a terrific guitar player and producer, uh, said, I think I got a way to do this where it could be your song instead of just you repeating your dad's song. They did this kind of sultry, swinging, kind of relaxed groove, very dark, that totally transformed it and allowed Roseanne to really create her own vision of what the song represented, those words of devotion coming from her as opposed to her dad, uh, taking on new meaning. Uh, A beautiful version of I Walk the Line from the Ry Cooter, Roseanne Cash tour of earlier this year on Sound Opinions. That is I Walk the Line from uh, Roseanne Cash and Rye Cooter, uh, their recent tour. It is not officially released. Uh, be aware of that, but hopefully someday. I'm sorry I missed that show, Greg. It sounded like a good one. Uh, a record I would have been happy to miss. This is indeed a full-bore Thanksgiving turkey shoot contender. <laughs> uh, you wanted to review it at one point. We never got around to it. Free, the 18th studio album by the inimitable uh, Godfather of Punk, Iggy Pop. <sighs> All right. Iggy's old. All right. He'd rather play golf now than go out on tour. When he's on stage, he is still 100% Iggy Pop, uh, the guy that we first heard fronting the Stooges, but he has not made good albums for a very long time. That having been said, it's rare that he's made an album as bad as free. I, I think you have to go back to uh, argue over whether 2012's French language après mm. his his, yeah. his cabaret record uh, is better or worse or just equally as unwelcome as this record free, which is part a lounge act in the sense of like Bill Murray on Saturday Night Live in that old skit doing the lounge crooner, part spoken word and part uh, just gratuitously a little bit of avant free jazz scrunk, mm. like suddenly a little fun house comes in. 
This this record is a mess. Occasionally, he tries to uh, push some buttons with some just sexist, bonehead, misogynist, arguably homophobic, uh, you know, uh, colon response there on that Dirty Sanchez song. Or he's telling us he's James Bond. And then the whole thing sort of builds to him doing a spoken word performance of Dylan Thomas's Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. That's mm. like... Yeah, I understand Iggy's always had a really sharp sense of humor. I understand that he must be uh, wondering, why am I still alive when my collaborators, my friends, Lou Reed and David Bowie are gone, right? I'm glad Iggy's alive. I'm glad he can go shoot, you know, 18 rounds of golf or whatever the hell you do in that sport. I just don't want to hear this record ever again. And you made me listen to it because we're going to review it. You liked it. I have no understanding of that whatsoever. It's a turkey as far as I'm concerned. Here is uh, Iggy channeling Dylan Thomas on Sound Opinions. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. No wise man at their end, no dark is right. Because their words have forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying upright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Do not go gentle into that good night. <laughs> Iggy Pop's interpretation of the fame poem. Okay, I'm with you on that. That's a little bit That's much, bad. You know? That's bad. There's not, no need for that. It, there, there are moments on that record that I do like. That is not one of them. I, I do have to say, though, that Iggy made a terrific record a couple of years ago with Josh Homme, the uh, post-pop depression record. I think mm. it was really good. I disagree at that, uh, too. And yeah. I would like to see him get, to, get back in the studio with him. Do you, our listeners, have a musical leftover you are itching to discuss Call and leave a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800, or find us on Facebook or Twitter. After our break, Jim and I are going to share more musical leftovers. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Codd. And I don't know how you feel about this, Greg, but to me, <laughs> rather than the big Thanksgiving dinner where everything is fresh out of the oven and it's the big to-do, you know, I, I prefer the leftovers. I, I'm 100% with Give you. Give me the turkey sandwich, a little cranberry a little sauce, more stuffing, right? You can pick what you want. You don't have to go all, uh, with everything. Right, you know? right. This is our Thanksgiving leftover show, stuff that we just never got around to talking about this year. And you are up next. I am, Jim. Thank you. I wanted to talk about this Netflix 10-part hip-hop reality show competition. You know, and normally this kind of stuff just leaves I me so cold. competition shows. But I love the vibe of Rhythm and Flow much better. Not to mention, you know, here we have our first TV series affirmation of hip-hop as being the soundtrack of American popular music, basically, in it's the 21st time. century. It's about time. The judges were very astute choices, I thought. Chance the Rapper... Cardi B mm-hmm. and T.I., all of whom were terrific in their own way. I like the things you were spitting. I like your energy. You look like you will be all over the internet. Very interesting. It's a social media era. You were real entertaining and it made me want to see more. Yay! <laughs> it doesn't matter like what your genre is. Like You got to be able to get on a stage and have people be engaged. And I feel like you made everybody engaged. You know how those judges, they get so smarmy sometimes? None of these three had any smarm. There was no, like, mincing words. There was no, 
you know, coddling of these performers. There was a lot of hard-edged advice going out. And it, mm. was, it was smart advice, I thought. I thought the level of performances was pretty strong. These artists had to basically come up with various incarnations of a song and presentation, and they had to do a rap battle. It was basically all incarnations of hip-hop through this 10-part series. The artist who won the competition was a relative elder statesman in hip-hop, 33 years old, a guy by the name of D. Smoke from Inglewood, California. Very Kendrick-like in his presentation. Mm -hmm. Yes, very Kendrick Lamar. Kind of metaphysical lyrically, you know, arranged these songs in a very unconventional way. Theatrical performances. The performance that he won with called Last Supper was kind of this multi-part psychodrama. I mean, I'm going, I have never seen anything approaching this level of daring, of boldness, of just Mm. weirdness matched with technical skill. And for that reason, I give it a lot of credit for, for doing what it did. And D. Smoke is a guy to watch. I, I, I'm like thinking, what's this guy going to do next? Because I'm intrigued. And that's the first time I can ever think about one of the winners of these shows, thinking, like, wow, what's mm. that album going to sound like? All right. So, uh, you know, props to Rhythm and Flow as being a, a, a real eye-opener. Well, props to you for watching 10 hours of TV <laughs> to give me one good yes, song. Thank indeed, you. indeed. Here is Last Supper from D. Smoke, the winner of the, uh, the Rhythm and Flow Netflix series competition on Sound Opinions. Keep it 100, I be feeling like who? Who? Nobody. These people can finally understand when I land, I'm the man. What you thought this was? Looking from Japan to the land. Suckers know what's up. I'm praying they overstand me. Every kid need a hero. I'm trying to be Uncle Stanley. R.I.P. All I see is concrete. Burn rubber glass standard on the concrete. Keep it 100, I be feeling like Campbell's soup over white rice Baked chicken with the skin on Lowry's with black pepper I'm fully seasoned with half the effort Ass money, but the match, boy, I've been on I'm a pit with a bunch of labs in the kennel Papa Sticks used to pour it back till he went on Drop a fifth and reach in the bag And then pull out a sack to relax And pass the blood like a million That is D Smoke with Last Supper from the Netflix series Rhythm and Flow Contestant turned hit rapper, Jim. Who knew? <laughs> all right. All right. Well, I'll, I'll look forward to that album, Greg. As far as looking forward to an album, I think the young REM fan, and I was on board from that first EP way back in the 80s on, despite what I said last week about Monster and its new 25th anniversary box set being uh, not worth your time, I've always waited for Michael Stipe's solo record. Hmm. I think everybody has. What is he going to do? You know, Peter Buck has done a million things, the guitarist in R.E.M., but Michael Stipe's never put his name on a solo recording, and now he did. He apparently has uh, quite a few recordings done, all done by himself, are awaiting a proper album release, but he rush-released Your Capricious Soul, a single, in October to time it with the international climate justice protests, and he's giving the uh, the proceeds to uh, an organization called Extinction Rebellion 
the death of the planet under global warming is on Michael Stipe's mind, and he has nothing to say about hmm. it. The, the lyrics of this song seem to be more about social media and somebody grumbling about people thinking they know you when all they know is what's said on social media. And he delivers them in a, in a very high sort of uh, vocal style. It's not quite falsetto, but it ain't Michael Stipe mumbling hmm. wonderful gruff baritone either. I mean, I you know, no, no apologies. This guy has one of the best voices for my money in the history of rock and roll, period. You know? And I have so long been waiting to see what a, a just Michael Stipe recording would be. And it turns out to be an inferior copy of Moby. Mm. Right. You know, electronic track with vocals that are not his best saying absolutely nothing with no melody. Huh. And and I'm <laughs> saying I waited 30 years for this. It just bums me out. And so does that monster box. And so does the way R.E.M. broke my heart. You know, I ain't I ain't going to defend anything after automatic for the people at this point. But damn, everything too automatic is brilliant. Michael Stipe, your capricious soul on Sound Opinions. Honey's got, got, got a new feeling Honey peeled herself off the ceiling Because God, God, God is revealing How to serve your body How to serve your mind Searching your Michael Stipe, Your Capricious Soul, a single from a forthcoming album, uh, waited uh, half a century for a solo Michael Stipe, and it was not worth the wait. Maybe he needed Peter, Bill, and Mike after all. R.E.M. was not R.E.M. after drummer Bill Berry left. That's my contention. You got one more Thanksgiving leftover. I do, Jim. We got uh, inundated with the 50th anniversary Woodstock documentaries and repackagings and reminiscences classic baby boomer gathering in the Three days in rural New York. Peace, love, and understanding, and nakedness, yeah. and mud. There were a few performances in this concert that were overlooked, one of them being by one of the headliners, Credence Clearwater Revival. There are people I've known over the years that didn't even realize that Credence was part of that festival, yeah. even though they were the first band that really came on board, and they were so big at the time that they're signing up to perform at Woodstock convinced others to sign up as well. We're talking about The Who, Jimi Hendrix, people of that ilk. They were in the midst of a run of three classic albums, Bayou Country, Green River, Willie and the Poor Boys, all released within a 10-month span Mm. of that year. I mean, those are three classic albums. 
and and they were at the height of their fame in many ways and and the height of their abilities as a four-piece rock and roll band. But their 11-song, 55-minute set was not in the movie, was not in the soundtrack, because John Fogarty, the lead singer in the band, felt it was subpar. Mm. He said, we came out there after midnight because all the other bands went long, and everybody was asleep. And I, nobody nobody cared. Nobody in the audience seemed to care. He was wrong about that. I think he was a little bit miffed that they, that they went on so late. But people did care, and uh, the fact that the many, many millions more people actually saw the movie and heard the soundtrack than were actually at the festival, that was not a strong marketing move on John's part in terms mm. of getting CCR's name out there. It was an indication of the way CCR continually shot itself in the foot. Here was a band that never really got the recognition it was due, broke up before its time because of in, you know interband squabbling. Fogarty left, famously did not perform the CCR songs for years, decades, because he got screwed on the publishing. Talk about a, an ugly history of a great band that may have been changed somewhat had had the band agreed to have its music put out in the soundtrack and in the movie. Now we finally have that performance. Here's what they sounded like. It's great. CCR. <laughs> it's part of this massive box set, and you can mm. hear it on, on various uh, streaming services. You can also buy it if you wish. CCR performing a cover of Screamin' Jay Hawkins' I Put a Spell on You at Woodstock in 1969 on Sound Opinion. I put a spell on you. We've played it recently, Greg. Yeah. But but no one's heard the CCR version, or very few people have, from that Woodstock box. I've got one more uh, song that uh, many people probably haven't heard, but should. Thanksgiving Leftover, you and I were huge fans of the two albums that Savages, the UK-based art punk yeah. band, released. Silence Yourself, 2013, Adore Life in 2016. And, and you and I turn to each other at least every three, four months and say, we need a new Savages record, right? <laughs> I mean, I've, I've been on record saying this is the best band I've heard since Nirvana. I love those two records live. They were even stronger. We have not had new Savages music. I do not think they are officially broken up, but they are on hiatus, mm-hmm. and members of the band are doing different things. The most active one has been Jenny Beth, the vocalist. She's a young French woman who joined these three bandmates in Savages in the U.K., you know, she had a career before Savages as part of a lo-fi duo with her partner, Johnny Hostile, John and Jen, and uh, she's been working with him in the interim. A lot of interesting little projects, uh, Score, 
for a documentary about Chelsea Manning, XY Chelsea. She was part of a Bowie tribute. She did some stuff with Gorillaz. She did some stuff with Julian Casablancas of Strokes. Um, but I think this single, which just came out, it's streaming all over the place, I'm the Man, is the most significant thing she's given us. And it, and it really whets my appetite for new savages because it's in that mold of furious post-punk noise guitar mm. and then this unexpected, beautiful, almost orchestral breakdown. I'm the Man, according to Jenny Beth, is about all men and all humans at this point in time and the uh, complexities of the evil they are capable of, but also, as always with Savages, that, that ray of hope. We can be better. We can strive to be more. It was, interestingly, uh, debuted as part of the uh, soundtrack of Peaky Blinders, hmm. that British crime love drama. It. I love that show. Do you love that show? I do. I have lots of friends who love that show. I don't get that show. I don't get it. But I get this song. I really get this song. You know, when you think in rock history, back to 55, Bo Diddley, I'm a man, you know, and how many rock songs have we had about I'm a man or I'm the man or I'm hot stuff, basically, mm -hmm. right? And Jenny Beth, uh, well, she put it's a different spin on <laughs> that whole notion with her song, an original, I'm the Man. Here it is on Sound Opinions. Good stuff. Mm. I'm the man by Jenny Beth. Jenny, get those savages back to work. Not that we don't love your solo efforts, we do. Has something from the music world been hanging around uh, in your refrigerator or <laughs> has it been on your mind this year and we haven't gotten to it? Let us know. Give us a call at 888-859-1800 or connect with us on our busy Facebook group or on Twitter. Coming up, DJ Shadow talks about how he found the sample for a song on his new album. Plus, Jim, you're going to pop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox. Uh, what are you going to play? You know, what Chuck Berry did for driving around in your automobile with his singles and what the Beach Boys did for surfing, I'm going to play a song that does that for skateboarding. Cool. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Ladies and gentlemen... Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Codd, and that's a little bit of Rocket Fuel, the first single from DJ Shadow's new album, Our Pathetic Age. 
It's his most ambitious effort in years. 23 tracks, half sample-based instrumentals, an instrumental suite uh, in the first half of the record, and then the other half featuring guests like uh, Run the Jewels, Nas, Fantastic Negrito, and De La Soul, who provide the vocals on this particular track. For our sample platter segment, producer Andrew Gill talked to DJ Shadow about how he built Rocket Fuel around an old doo-wop sample. But talking with a sampling legend like Shadow, the conversation started way before that with the beginnings of his famous record collection. I started buying and accumulating records um, in the early 80s, mainly as just a fan of music and a fan of hip-hop. I started to sell my comic books. I had a paper route. I just was trying to hustle to be able to buy a couple of records at the end of every week. As sampling became more prevalent in hip-hop starting around 86, 87, I became interested in the source material that people were using to make the records. In 1987, that was really my first trip to a record store with the express purpose of buying Parliament Records and James Brown Records. I had a little list of breakbeats that I had transcribed out of a magazine from the UK called NME. Back in 87, it was really easy, you know what I mean? There, especially where I lived in California, there was nobody going around buying these records at all, and they were cheap and they were everywhere. So that's really when I started buying older records and there's that kind of semi-famous scene in the movie Scratch where I'm down in the basement of records on K Street, probably two million records down there, stacked up in eight feet high pillars. Over here is where uh, I was digging and there was a mummified bat under one of the records. That was nice. Watch your step here. You smell the gas? It smells like gas. I guess that's just the records. I'd bring my portable turntable down there and just start going through records and pulling things that spoke to me. And I'm honestly a believer that certain things kind of shine and, and demand to be examined. That was my only process. I would kind of go through records and one would speak to me or have a particular vibration to it. And I'd pull it out and listen to it and Throughout the making of my entire first album, um, anytime I got stuck, anytime I felt like I needed inspiration or more source material, I would drive to K Street and go down in the basement, and inevitably I would end up finding the key that unlocked whatever problem I was having. Obviously, not everything I would pull out would be a gem. Obviously, I don't have my equipment there or anything, so I would have to imagine, would this work with what I have going on back home in my studio? And So I would just grab stuff. Stack by stack, if you're grabbing 60, 70 records, on a weekly basis, before long, you know, stuff starts to add up. Starting, I guess, around 97, 98, I could see the window closing, and I basically dedicated eight, ten years of most of my free time to just traveling around the U.S. and uh, visiting warehouses and trying to source records. And I really overbought 
because I was so fearful that I would wake up one day and I would have no more source material and there'd be no place to go out and replenish. So at this point, I have more records than I'll probably ever be able to get through. And that's not a bragging thing. I mean, people talk about the size of collections and all that. To me, it's utterly irrelevant. One, two, three, four, five. Breakdown, baby. I got a call from my dad basically saying that a friend of his who I, I knew from you know, him hanging around through the years. I had some records and he, he wanted to get rid of them. I could just come and pick them up. And my dad lives about an hour away, two hours away on a bad traffic day. So that's a four hour round trip. And I was kind of sitting there going, okay, well, I don't want to let my dad's friend down. He, he wants somebody to take them. I should be a good son and just come get this stuff. You know what I mean? It was more that than I think I'm excited about the prospect of picking up these records. I, I have plenty at this point, but, you know, I don't want to stop. I enjoy the process of gathering still. So I said, okay, I'll go out and pick them up. And as I was driving, I just had this feeling that I get sometimes where you just kind of go, you know, what are you doing? You could be doing a million other things with your time right now. What's wrong with you that you feel compelled to still do this? And I pulled up. And it was a couple of boxes of records, and I kind of fingered through them. And it was a kind of odd assortment, and he told me that a lot of the records were from an old roommate or something like that. I didn't think much of it, and it's not like I was seeing a bunch of stuff that made my pulse quicken. It was more just like random and kind of a shrug. So I take the records, and it sort of becomes assimilated into whatever else I've picked up over the last three months. My routine every morning to kind of get awake and get my brain working is all spend about an hour, an hour and a half just playing through records. And, you know, in the process of doing that, this this one particular morning, I played the record and it was a record by the Belmonts. The cover was taken at a, a candy shop either in New Jersey or New York. It just had that East Coast feel to it. I just was studying the photo, and I realized the photo had a particular quality that I always liked. Of a particular era and a particular style of film, I liked the quality of the photos and was looking at it and playing through the record, and it was kind of what I thought it would be. It was a cappella, kind of doo-wop, revivalist stuff in the early 70s and mid-70s and even late 70s with... Sha Na Na and a number of other revivalist groups, Flash Cadillac and the Continental Kids. There were a few different bands that were kind of riding this wave of nostalgia for the 50s. But playing through the record, I was like, okay, this is, this is kind of cool. I see what they're doing. And they still sounded great. I had a respect for what they were trying to do, and it seemed like it was done with integrity and done with, with care. And when I hear things like that on a record, it sort of motivates me to let the needle just stay where it is and, and let the record keep playing. So I let it play, and then this cover of Na Na Hey Hey Kiss Him Goodbye by Steam came on, and it was kind of cool how the vocals were arranged to kind of do all the instruments and do all the singing parts. Na 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 na
After about a minute of playing through it and looking at the cover while I'm listening, I kind of went, wait, let me hear this again. And I just, you know, picked up the needle and put it back to the beginning of the track. And then I started a process that I do maybe one out of every 20, 20, 30, 40, 50 records, whatever, where I went, okay, I'm going to make a recording of this with the purpose of potentially sampling it. So I get a particular Pro Tools session together. I record the part I want to use, and then that becomes like this batch of source material that I can reference back to at a point when I'm, you know, making music and, and inspired to make music. So when it came time to start working on the record, it just spoke to me. I opened up a session, imported the, the sample, and started building a beat around it. And for me, it, it just screamed, this is a rap track because the, the singing was a constant and I just thought it would be really cool to juxtapose that with a good, you know, straight up rap voice. As soon as I found out that De La is doing stuff on Mass Appeal, which is my same label, I made the inquiry and, and it, yeah, it just, it just happened really quickly and really smoothly. the green light, go. Ties burn the pavement. People want to know where Mace Poss and Dave went. Still here, still in your ear with a style so hot. No swear all the sun rays went. Legs, arms, and head all being moved in a frenzy. The blends be all the right cred. Meaning credentials. Best of both worlds when we rocking over pearls. And the instrumental. Are you ready? They sound like they haven't missed a step. You know what I mean? Like, there's been, at no point, have they ever stopped doing it. And... I love it for that reason. I only like to take things about 50% of the way before I pass them off to a vocalist because I don't like to hear music that sounds like there was a finished instrumental and then somebody came along, did something over the top, and then they said, okay, it's done. To me, it doesn't feel like there's a give and take and a collaboration should be a give and take. De La wrote to it, sent me the vocals back. I loved it. I rearranged certain things with the hook and some of the background vocals. And then just went in, finished the music, and then I thought, you know what? I want to put horns on this track. Recorded some horns lived with it for a couple of weeks and thought, you know what, okay, this needs a scratch breakdown. It was a true kind of journey, this track. After I got the vocals, it probably took me about two and a half, three months to finish. That's the way I like to do things, is to live with them for a while until I start to feel where things drag or the arrangement has a flaw and I need to fix that flaw. And you really need time to do that. But can you rock it like rocket fuel? I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched.
Do you remember? We were shipwrecked together. As often as possible on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island, pop a quarter in the desert island jukebox, and play a song we cannot live without. Jim, it's your turn. Greg, uh, one of my last uh, DIJs was inspired by my class this semester, Music and Media in Chicago. And I'm, I'm going to that well again, because just the other day I was lecturing on Lupe Fiasco, one of the uh, key talents to emerge from Chicago hip-hop. And the light in my young students' eyes, 18, when many of them hear for the first time Kick Push by Lupe Fiasco. Now, this is a song we've played on the show from time to time. In fact, we did a sample platter on this song about two and a half, three years ago, right? Because the sample is fascinating. Soundtrack produced for young Wasalu Mohammed Jaco, his debut album, Food and Liquor. He produced Kick Push, and they built the song around a couple of seconds of Bolero Medley from 1982 by a Filipino singer, uh, Celeste Lagaspi, and it's the perfect swelling orchestral sample that Lupe then brilliantly uses to evoke the feeling. Now, I've never been on a skateboard, okay? I got to confess that. But I have talked to many skateboarders. Uh, you know, this idea of kick, push, kick, push, kick, mm-hmm. push, coast. Rarely in the history of popular music has the idea of motion in a car, on a surfboard, on a skateboard been so wonderfully evoked in music as in this track. Uh, and every verse ends with a really sad refrain that I think is familiar to too many African-American teenagers, boys and girls. Mm -hmm. They hear something like, there's no skating here. Not for you, Mm -hmm. right? Children of color in this country are demonized with this is not for you, not here. And I think it's political in that sense, and it is fun, and it is uh, based on a wonderfully obscure sample, and, and it just works on every single level. Here it is. Kick Push by Lupe Fiasco on Sound Opinion. Check it out. Uh, first got it when he was six, didn't know any tricks. Matter of fact, first time he got on it, he slipped. Landed on his hip and busted his lip. For a week, he had to talk with a list like this. Now we can end the story right here. But Shorty didn't quit, it was something in the air. Yeah, he said it was something so appealing. He couldn't fight the feeling, something about it. He knew he couldn't doubt it, couldn't understand it. Branded, since the first kick flip, he landed. Uh, labeled a misfit, abandoned. Cocoon, cocoon. His neighbors couldn't stand his soul He was banished to the park Started in the morning, one stopped after dark Yeah, when they said it's getting late in here So I'm sorry young man, there's no skating here So we kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, coast And away he rolled, just a rebel to the world with no place to go And so we kick, push, kick, Lupe Fiasco with Kick Push Came out in the spring of 2006. I'll never forget watching Kanye West perform at a giant field in in, yeah. in, in Chicago. And he says, I got a friend. And across the stage, skates Lupe Fiasco. That was awesome. That was a great moment. I, I remember being there. It was a terrific uh, Saturday night in Chicago in the yes. summer. Yep. What do we got on the show next week, Greg? Next week, Jim, we are going to dig deep into the life of beat generation icon William Burroughs and his connection to rock and roll. For more sound opinions, you can listen to the podcast wherever you find such things. The show is produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and Andrew Gill. Well, here are a few simple admonitions for young and
On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Hey guys, this is David in Chicago. I really enjoyed your recent Buried Treasure show, and someone I think who's an absolute gem is Ia Toya. She just released this month uh, track Glass Eyes. It was a remix of the Joy Thieves, and for anyone who liked the Matrix soundtrack, she's doing an amazing job of keeping that dark wave sound and the aesthetic alive and well. I think the soundscape on that track is just gorgeous. And uh, it's not just your sound, though. Her live performance is phenomenal. I saw her at Subterranean in Chicago recently, where she was a one-woman act. She's a multiple instrumentalist, vocalist. She has lights, video effects. She's absolutely amazing. Totally dropped my jaw. She's the real deal. All right, thanks a lot. Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Kyle from Kentucky. We've had a wealth of great music coming from the Bluegrass State lately, from Sturgill Simpson to Tyler Childers, Cage Elephant, My Morning Jacket. There's just a, a wealth of great music coming out of Kentucky. But a buried treasure here is the up-and-coming singer-songwriter Ian No. His debut release is Between the Country. Uh, hotshot Nashville guy Dave Cobb produces epic string of stories filled with unflinching cast of characters. And Irene... Irene's just one of them. Irene pulled in at midnight, lit on smoking beer, proudly crawled to the porch and called, your favorite child is here. There's a lot of darkness on this album, told in Ian's unique plain spoken tone. He can spin a tale unlike any songwriter going around today. And a lot of people have compared him to honorary Kentuckian John Prime. And that's a high claim, but it's, I think it's quite worthy. So check out Ian No, He's making Kentucky proud. And he's just another good singer-songwriter. Thanks, guys. She's cutting every road and killing every joke. She comes up on. Hey, y'all, this is Mike from New York City calling. I really enjoyed your show about songs that make you cry. That's really my jam. I love any kind of songs that make you cry because that's, you know, what's more powerful than that? Something that makes me cry are like really good wedding songs. I don't, you know, being married and committing yourself to somebody is uh, it's a big responsibility and so it uh, can really uh, make a person emotional and especially when it's mixed with great harmonies. And a couple examples of that, uh, one, The Power of Two, 
by Indigo Girls uh, is certainly one of my favorite songs in general, and it, it always brings a tear to my eye. And we actually had a friend play that song at our wedding. So we're okay, we're fine. Maybe I'm here to stop your crying. Chase all the ghosts from your head. I'm stronger than a monster beneath your bed. Smarter than the tricks played on your No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.